Welcome to the Painter's Dialectic. I am your host, Josh Green, a painter and art educator working in New York City. And today we're going to talk about the history of the studio. And I will be joined by Dylan Ahn, a philosopher working in London. Today we're going to have a more academic conversation, a more philosophical and structured conversation that will contrast with the conversation that me and Kenny had that was more artistic and free-flowing. This will be um, a more logical uh, argument, and we will present citable sources that, that you can look up, books that you could read after the show to learn more on this topic. But we're going to talk not so narrowly. We're going to give sort of a, a big overview of the history of the studio from medieval times all the way up to modern times, and how the studio changed with uh, culture, and how art making and our perception of the artist changed with culture, and also how the standards held by the culture of what was good and bad art impacted art making. Don't just listen to the podcast. Participate. Go to our Patreon, The Painter's Dialectic, and subscribe. We have different tiers with behind-the-scenes content of how we develop these ideas. This will help us to continue making this meaningful content. Check out also our Instagram page, The Pain is Dialectic. If you'd like to see my Instagram, it's Josh Green Artist. Or you can go to my website, joshgreenart.com, to learn more about me. If you'd like to study with me, go to greenatelier.art to sign up for lessons. I would like to welcome to the show my good friend and teacher, Dylan Ahn, a philosopher doing his PhD in London. Hey, Dylan, how's it going? Great. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Um, I think it would be nice if you could introduce yourself to everyone. Yeah. So as you say, I'm working on uh, my research at the University of London College, and it mainly revolves around more responsibility, but also specifically Buddhist more responsibility. So while I work with things uh, in the Western world as well, my research sort of overlaps into Eastern philosophy, Taoism, uh, Confucian, Confucius, and uh, Buddhist philosophy. Can you tell us a little bit about where you're from, your cultural background? Yeah. So. I mean, I suppose my overlap into the Eastern world probably is inspired by the fact that I am from there. <laughs> so I was born in Hong Kong and I grew up with this sort of philosophy and it was a very different way of looking at the world. Um, but unfortunately, the main trends of philosophy didn't revolve around that sort of thing. So when I decided to study philosophy, we learned things like the ancient Greeks, and I felt, well, it'd be nice to bring a little bit of what I knew, what I grew up with, to my own research. All right, so last episode, me and Kenny talked about the studio in a very uh, casual and artistic way. I'd like to get a little bit more academic and philosophical with you about the studio and um, show how it transformed over time. Yeah, that sounds good. So, historically... I'm just going to look at the European medieval period. Uh, that's that's a tradition I studied in, and I, I know it pretty well. Um, but after the uh, 
the Roman Empire collapsed and entered the Dark Ages, most merchants and craftsmen kind of traveled around um, searching for work. But um, as time progressed, uh, towns and, and cities started developing with their own economies, and these craftsmen and merchants settled in those towns, and um, the craftsmen started creating their studios. And there's many different types, you know, soap makers, uh, wool, architects, masons, painters, gilders, whatever. And then there was people selling those goods, the merchants, right? And they, one merchant would focus on one craft, okay? So they would be like the wool vendors for the town or whatever. And these people collected to protect themselves from scammers and um, people from outside cities and also to help regulate the, uh, the quality of the goods and services they were providing, they formed guilds. The guilds played a very important role in the development of these European cities. Over time, the guilds became very powerful politically. As mm -hmm. they gained more money, they, they would set down the laws of commerce. They would create fines for people who were breaking the laws that they set down. They had political power. They decided policy. But art at that time, you know, right at that shift happened, artists were just regular craftsmen, just like anyone else. The painters were painting frescoes in the churches and making uh, small icons for the home. They worked on not just like a, a physical plane, but also a spiritual plane. You know, they were doing a spiritual craft. It was a little bit elevated, but they were still craftsmen. They were still kind of like a blue-collar worker. So as time progressed, as these guilds gained political power, especially, and they were mixing with the elite aristocratic class, the aristocratic people started mixing with the guilds. They started having people painting. And one in particular that stands out in Italian history is Leon Battista Alberti. Okay, he wrote his treatise Della Pittura, which just means on painting. And this is where we really start seeing a shift in um, how artists and how the studio function. So Alberti was, was a monk. He was a polymath. Uh, he worked also on uh, cryptology, which I think is like code making. He was an intellectual from a, a very broad educational background. And after he wrote his, his book, Della Pictura, um, this kind of set a new standard for artists. All these intellectuals were entering the art fields, entering the crafts, and learning from them. And families would pay large sums of money to a really outstanding artist in the town to take their child, right? So the apprentice, the young apprentice would be like 8 or 12 years old. They'd pay this sum of money to the artist and they would live in the house, eat food with them. They were part of the family, and they grew up in the studio, and they worked for free, right? They were not paid anything. They just helped run the studio. They swept, they cleaned, they built canvases, they grinded paint, things like this. And as the apprentice, you know, after about maybe five to ten years of working at this craft, they became a journeyman, and they were supposed to go out into the world and work for other studios, other artists, and get a well-rounded understanding of the craft. And they were paid for their work. 
I think today we would call this a studio assistant, right? They were hired to do work. This is something still alive. Some uh, artists hire journeymen to build a sculpture, build a painting, actually do artistic things. Um, and then once this journeyman reached a certain level, they would make their masterpiece. That's where we get this word. They make a masterpiece, submit it to the guild to become a master. Right, so the guild would say, you've met our standards, uh, you are now a master, you can now establish a studio in the town. You no longer have to be a journeyman and you can take on apprentices. So that's how they regulated that standard. So as time went on, you know, these guilds became more and more powerful. The artists and the studios became more and more elite. It was very hard to get in. They became more um, uh, nepotistic, you know, just taking from the group and slowly became more and more corrupt. Um, in the 1600s, we have our next real important uh, person, especially in Italy. His name is Vasari, and he wrote The Lives of Artists, kind of the first art history in, in the West, um, where we get kind of this propagandized version of the painters. This is where we get our myth of um, Leonardo da Vinci, our myth of Michelangelo, Botticelli, all these guys, we get it from Vasari. He really um, made them sort of geniuses with divine inspirations, right? And so our idea of the artist is developing. As we move towards the German Romanticist period, uh, where they start valuing emotions, and also this is a time when um, we're moving out of the feudal system into capitalism. You know, master artists are becoming entrepreneurs or, or foremans at a factory, journeymen and apprentices are becoming laborers, skilled and unskilled, right? The journeyman is skilled, the apprentice is unskilled. Artists started taking a, a different role, also with the Romanticist philosophy, valuing the ups and downs of the emotion, the individual life. We start getting the individual artists going into the studio and, and going through this personal journey in the painting. And then as we move towards the 19th century uh, in industrialization, um, most of the guilds have been outlawed at that time. The government wanted all the power over the economy. The artist really becomes completely abstracted from the craft. And then we get, you know, phrases like, I can't teach what I do in the studio. You know, mm -hmm. it becomes this deeply personal, almost spiritual thing. You know, the artist becomes sort of um, a spiritual figure in in the community, um, doing something that no one else can do, right? And that's sort of the uh, the trajectory. And as we move in today, it's becoming more and more complex. What an artist is, what an artist does. Now we see that a artist uh, needs to be political in some way, to, to to stand up for for some end, some political end, right? Um, and have some type of practical function in society. Um, and there's also artists that are just uh, completely commercial now uh, in funding that. So that's kind of the two. But I would love to hear um, your perspective on all of that. You have the insight into all the different philosophies over time. You also have the Eastern insight. I'd love um, for you to go in depth on that. Yeah, it sounds to me that over time, the notion of the artist has sort of become less as a community 
but become more individual over time. Of course, there are many reasons for why that might be the case. You mentioned political is a very, very powerful reason as to why one might have to disassociate from a community. It could be personal in terms of personal philosophy, your what you want to express might have become different, your personal ideology, you might believe, for instance, there are some things, as you say, that just cannot be taught. Um, and so you go off and do your own thing. But I suppose there was a very powerful reason for people to join these guilds as a community in the first place. This notion of unity, whether it by uh, just a notion of purpose, of a similar purpose, we're all here to, do, to want to do the same thing, want to learn something, um, to have a group to look after one another. We eat together, we have this uh, brotherhood, if you'd like. I wonder to you as an artist, and of course you've been associated with many studios in your own practice, what do you think the main unifying power is? And what has happened? What do you think is like the major reason as to why that unifying power no longer has such a relevant, I suppose, influence or draw to artists nowadays as they tend to be more individual? Yeah, I have a very um, unique art education where I did study in Italy in a traditional academy, uh, which wasn't exactly like the uh, the studios that I was talking about, but this academy did form out of studios of a master artist. People would seek them out, but these weren't younger kids. These were adults, and they would study with them. Um, and we, you know, we paid the money, right? So it's a little bit mm. different, but a modern version of that. And completely unaccredited, Wild West, you know, <laughs> they can do whatever. Um, but studying in that setting is so intimate. Um, mm. I was, the, the people, there's 25 people in my class uh, that I stood next to for three years. Uh, from all around the world, all different walks of life. And we had the deepest bond by the end of that experience, it was so difficult to do the academic training, um, mm. so rigorous. And we were right next to each other the whole time. There's no personal space. Um, we knew the subtleties of everyone's facial expressions. We knew unsaid things about what, what was going on uh, mm. with them. And um, once we graduate, um, you know, that we still talk about those moments. You know, we have this deep connection to each other. And in the guilds, you know, there are some surviving guilds uh, which I have interacted with. One is the, the Freemasons. Mm. We're the Mason Guild who built the cathedrals and everything. So they, they have secret handshakes, secret sayings, their own culture, kind of their own uh, religious beliefs that they had to hide um, during intense uh, Christianity. Mm -hmm. And um, so if you wanted to get a job, say you're a, a Mason from another country, you do that handshake and they know that you have the skills, right? Mm -hmm. That instant recognition and that, that brotherhood. We see that today with the Masons. They wear that ring or that symbol, and anywhere in the world they are recognized and they're considered like a brother. It's kind of like a religion, you know. Uh, there's there's mm -hmm. Muslims or, or Christians in every country, and they all feel this unity. So that's that's what the guilds were, and that's what we lost. Uh, today in New York City, we have the individual artist, mm -hmm. 
and it's hard to meet anyone. It's hard to get these guys to come out and do anything. There's no sense of community. You're really just a rugged individual on your own, drudging through it. And, um, yeah, that's, it's, it's sad to miss that, you know, that, that there's no sense of community really in the art world now. Yeah. The reason why I ask is because the factors as to what brings a guild together, brings a community of artists together is precisely what factors change as they separate, right? So if what brings the guild together, as you mentioned, is political power, mm -hmm. then the loss of political power results in the loss of the community. If mm -hmm. the unifying power is economical, but you find out that you can actually make more money or you can make money on your own, then you, know, have, you have no reason to right. sort of share resources and eat together, right? So as an example, if you figured out that if you were eating together as a brotherhood, you were eating worse than you would have sort of striving out on your own, and that's the thing that you're staying for, then mm -hmm. you don't have any reason, right? You might as well go out there, have, you know, wine and caviar on your own. So there's a question of economical resources as a, as a unifying power. There's a question of po politics and nepotism, as you say, this influence over one another. There's the notion, as you mentioned, of class, this idea of, oh yeah, I'm part of a group, I'm part of this, this class of people who are masters or skilled individuals. But of course, the most, perhaps the most powerful thing that you have noted is this notion of intimate interpersonal relationship, this idea of you know, being part of a family. And I'm not particularly sure as to what necessarily unites this family. Because is that to say that if you were to be in, in a different situation, a different community, but with the same people, would it still have the same effect? Right? Mm -hmm. So I often hear sort of some of my uh, friends from high school, they you know, they're from Korea or Singapore, they have to go and do sort of... Uh, be be part of the army for a few years, right? That's part of their country system. And being through something together has a bonding effect, but they didn't really do it because of any personal belief or, you know, similar purpose. They had to, <laughs> right? So they were, you know, in to some degree made to join this exercise. And since they were, they went through an ordeal together, that is that there's a similar experience that bonds them. But I feel that there might be something a little bit more going here with the guild and then artists. Perhaps maybe not in the case later on, but certainly in the beginning, there's this sense of, well, we have a similar purpose. We all want to do and express something that is meaningful uh, and valuable to us. And in certainly in the East, right, with the what we refer as like the hundred clans, this hundred school, philosophical schools during the warring periods. That is what sort of drew people together. Yes, there's that notion of having a brotherhood, of having a family. Um, yes, there's also that notion of your mentor uh, being kind of like a father figure as well. That mentor, usually a man, uh, not only teaches you the craft and the knowledge, but also is meant to shape you as a, as a person, as a human being. I wonder if that is the case in the guilds of the past, or even the guilds of today, or in your own experience, does that mentor figure act like almost like a father figure as well? Do they also try and shape you as a human being and your personal values? Yeah, the, the mentor is very important. Mm -hmm. um, let me just touch on a few things. Yeah, I think you always get the truth when you look at the, the, 
the money and the power systems, <laughs> right? And so yeah. those earlier guilds, um, when times are scarce, people band together. Right. I'm I'm from the Gulf Coast, and we go through hurricanes regularly. And suddenly, you know, when a hurricane hit and things got messed up, I knew who all my neighbors were. And we shared food and we shared resources. But as soon as things were back to normal, we didn't talk to anyone anymore. <laughs> so I Quite think a cynical sort but, of outlook. <laughs> but I, I think that's the case, you know. These, these, mm-hmm. During the medieval times, it was rough. Um, yeah. And you band together. And I think even, um, you know, like like the mafia style uh, justice mm. system, that was normal, right? Like there was a the head of the family and they would act out justice, right? Right. There wasn't really police or anything. Uh, the government also took over that. So, so the power was sort of more spread out between people. Mm. And we see that in the guilds, they probably had their own kind of police and everything. But as um, we move into capitalism, you see the guilds falling away um, people becoming more individualistic, life becomes more focused on the individual when times are better, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And um, we're, they're not really depending on each other anymore. Um, yeah. And you see that today in, um, in America, I'm sure in the UK it's the same, highly individualistic uh, culture. Um, but that all makes sense politically and economically. Um, and I think, yeah, today, you know, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur because it makes more sense. I want more freedom and I want to keep mm-hmm. my value. I don't want my value extracted, right? right. So I, I make my own business. Um, but the intimacy, I think, is really sad. I, I was some of the, the most special moments of my life were where I went through something really hard with a group of people. Mm-hmm. We really got to know each other, and that's what happened in the academy. It wasn't like a hard, hard time. It was a good, hard time. But we we went through a lot together. Mm-hmm. And today in this highly individualistic society, uh, we just go through things alone, like this pandemic. Right. Uh, it's extremely hard, extremely lonely life to not have that group to depend on. And then with the mentor, yeah, especially the academy, the power system is is very uh focused right Mm -hmm. so the master has so much power that you got to watch what you say you can't really say what you think all the time you have to Mm -hmm. you know be be a beta person right (laughs) under the alpha and um there's a lot of abuse of power in that because you can't really talk back i think today the power is a little bit more spread out it's not as abusive so that's a nice thing Mm -hmm. um and you're kind of free to educate yourself, think your own things today. So I think that's a better thing. You lose the intimacy, but you gain sort of intellectual and personal freedom mm-hmm. by having the power more spread out than mm-hmm. in the past where you're kind of ruled by this one guy and you have to stick to their aesthetic. Or even back mm-hmm. then you had to paint for the church, right? right? And a lot of the people painting for the church were the people suppressed by the uh, by the church. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, and that's a great that's a great point because that was going to lead on to what I wanted to bring up, which is the unifying power ultimately comes down to the standard, right? So as we all know that power can be a, an issue of resources, can be an issue of community, could be an issue of 
politics, but ultimately power sort of, to use a Game of Thrones quote, resides where people think it resides. And the power that comes from a guild, from an artist studio, is the standard of taste, if you'd like. The standard at which what is qualified as or judged as good work, as, as masterful, as, as uh, a craft, resides in those that you think are masters of that particular craft or masters of that judgment of taste. And so what immediately jumped out to me in the discussion of the guilds is the question of why or who decides what that standard of taste is. <laughs> and precisely, I thought, I thought that perhaps the reason why the guild sort of lost influence over time is people started to question as they became journeymen, as they became masters of their own craft, of their own style, of their own means of expression. And over time, of course, the influences of economics and you no longer have the uh, reliance of resources on one another and also political reasons as well, the individual starts to question the things that they've been taught, right? The things that they were taught that they had to express. As you mentioned, the influence of the church. Like, why does the church get to decide what is good art or what I should make or paint or create? Why can't I decide? And so one of the major discussions at least in philosophy, in the realm of aesthetics, which is the aspect of philosophy that deals with art more intimately speaking, is this standard of taste. We all think that there is good and bad art, right? Maybe some philosophers will disagree. Some philosophers genuinely think that, okay, everything is basically a free-for-all. You get to decide whatever you'd like, uh, and especially art of nowadays is very self-referential, very self-aware, often questions this notion of what is art. Um, but even though rationally we do realize this as the case, we don't often hesitate to make judgments about what is good and what is bad art. We go watch a terrible film like Sharknado. Nobody thinks that Sharknado is a genuine, masterful work of art. At least I don't think so. Um, but perhaps if you watch Citizen Kane, for instance, widely lauded as one of the best or the best film of all time. And that raises the question is, well, how do these critics know? How do the Oscar panel or the Golden Gloves, how do they know what counts as good actors, good art, good craft? And of course, within the, the world of painting, that's even more difficult. Um, and so I'd like to ask, is, was there a standard in the guilds, or do the guilds just set their own standards from guild to guild? Yeah, there was absolutely standards. You know, during, during the early formations of the guilds uh, in the medieval period, there wasn't supposed to be any variation in how you painted mm. the re religious icons, right? right? They stayed the same for hundreds of years. But we see the change when um, humanist philosophy started recurring, Neoplatonist, right? Mm. Finally, Europe, I guess, getting it from the, uh, the Arabs, we're getting the Greek philosophy, translating it into vulgar uh, Italian and Latin, and those ideas are being reborn. And um, that's when you see that the religious imagery started shifting. Um, mm -hmm. Giotto, in his frescoes, he stopped doing the Gilda background, and we see blue skies. We see people with actual emotions, right? Mm -hmm. uh, these are actual people going through an experience that we can relate to. They have a psychology embedded in them. 
right? A pathos mm-hmm. in the in the Greek. And then as we move forward after Alberti's book, we see that um, Brunelleschi discovered one-point perspective. It becomes more naturalistic. So these standards changed as culture changed. But right. obviously the people who are the most powerful were at the top of the guild, people with mm-hmm. the most money. Um, I don't think that necessarily these people are the best. They're just the most mm-hmm. powerful. They get to, they get to say in what you do. But this really all came to a head in the turn of the 19th century. Um, right. So in France, um, there was the Beaux-Arts Academy. It's still there. Uh, this was probably the biggest art academy in the world at the time. There's also the Royal Academy in Russia. But um, the art fairs that they had were still the biggest art fairs ever held in history. People traveled by boat, by carriage from all around the world to go to these art fairs to pick out their court painters. Mm. And the gallery was the Louvre. Okay. And so they'd hang the paintings from the floor all the way to the ceiling. And the standards to get into this were very rigid and controlled. And the best pieces were closer to eye level. And then the less important works, uh, the less... Or the skill wasn't as high. They were put... They were skied, right? That's mm-hmm. what they call it. They put it way up towards the ceiling. Mm-hmm. And you had to submit to be in this. And this was the only way you could become a professional painter. Right. And so during that period, there was a movement against this. First, it started with Corvée and the Realist. Um, they started painting um, peasant people, working class people. Mm-hmm. This is when capitalist... Uh, critical capitalist philosophy started happening and they put those they wanted to put those on the wall and they're like you're not putting peasants up here you can't mm-hmm. put the working class up here <laughs> are you joking um and then you know there's the impressionist who everyone hated at the time they formed right. their own salon called the salon of the refused mm-hmm. um mm, and I, that I created the, yeah. the modern art movement this counter movement took over and Actually, the academic artists were almost forgotten. They just tried to erase it, their whole mm-hmm. history. Most people don't know who Bouguereau is today, but he was the, the guy, the standard um, mm-hmm. during that time. But um, we see that taste changed a lot during that time. Right. That um, as things became more creative, uh, there wasn't really these rigid right and wrongs. It became more about the artist's intent, the goal, what they're right. trying to communicate, and they valued originality. Um, and we see artists, you know, into the later period, the abstract painters, they were terrible craftsmen, um, mm-hmm. couldn't draw anything, uh, Rothko, mm-hmm. Pollock. But they were great artists. They were great innovators, right? right? They did things that hadn't been done before, supposedly, mm-hmm. and... Um, they they made a shift in culture and that's where tastes move to and that's right. that's when it starts getting really hard to define because right. with realism you can look at something and go that looks pretty real all right mm-hmm. that must be good right but with when you're trying to describe something ephemeral and highly subjective mm-hmm. uh that's a lot harder that <laughs> who knows <laughs> yeah that depends on your goal right right yeah, and so hearing that description, am I right in thinking that you think that 
the standard of taste is like a relative thing, right? You're relativists, as we as we as we would call in philosophy when it comes to this. Or do you think that there is actually a standard? The there's the standard of taste. I can give you my controversial take. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have like an ideal artist in my head, right? But I can admire good art by anyone, right? There's complete right. amateurs. Mm-hmm. Who will make something that's really interesting, right? right? So I think good art can be doesn't you don't have to be a master craftsman, whatever, to make good art. Mm-hmm. But I would like the best artist to be highly skilled, right? Uh, to be very intellectual, mm-hmm. you know, philosophical. They can they can structure an argument right. and and debate, you know, why their why their art is good. And also highly intuitive and creative, right? Being mm-hmm. able to do things that haven't been done. Right. So that's how I judge. Um, mm-hmm. Those are my standards. Um, people can lack those, but that's just me, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> that's, I mean, that sounds very, very similar. To, it reminds me, it always reminds me when I speak about aesthetics and art of Ratatouille, this idea, like this lasting quote that I think resonates quite well with people. The idea that not, we admit the fact that there is bad art, right? And we admit the fact that not everyone is a good artist, but we also recognize that a good artist can come from anywhere, right? There's no physical barrier, right? In terms of there is no genetic defect, there's no biological defect when it comes to good art. Um, So, I'd like to bring in sort of maybe I could change your mind or maybe I could sort of refine an idea. Back in the sort of 1800s, there was a philosopher, there's a Scottish philosopher called David Hume, and he famously wrote sort of something called an essay called Of the Standard of Taste. And he basically recognized the same problem. He saw that, well, over the years, tastes change, right? There's some, but nevertheless, we find it very difficult to say that there is no such thing as good art and there's no such thing as bad art, despite the fact that there is clearly a change of tastes, a change of values, as you mentioned, and that dictates the change of standard. So he was thinking about, he's wondering, is there a standard? And perhaps one of the good ways of telling whether something is good art is perhaps the fact that it lasts through the ages. So if you're looking at maybe Homer, the works of Homer, like clearly it must be good art, right? Otherwise it wouldn't be lauded and appraised for this many years onwards. But he was, being the philosopher that he is, he wanted to be more precise. He wanted to find out what exactly the criteria is. He's not comfortable with the idea of good art just being judged in terms of an intuitive emotional response. He wanted a list, (laughs) as philosophers often, a list of things. And he ended up not necessarily coming up with a list of what good art consists of, right? As you mentioned, technique of skill, but rather what the judgment of a good uh, of a good critic would be. So rather than saying good art is this, this, and this, he says good art is whatever a good critic deems to be good art, but a good critic does have a standard. So rather than saying this is really good food, we say, okay, if a Michelin star critic deems it to be good food, then it is good food. And it's much easier to come up with a list of qualities a good critic or a good artist has uh, rather than coming up with a list of what good art is. And so 
in the end, he ended up with a list of sort of five things, he thinks, to do with the faculty of a good critic, of a good judgment. And he thinks, well, the first thing is to do with accuracy, uh, or as he put it, the delicacy of taste. So he thinks that you're a good critic, you're a good judge, if you can have the technical ability to identify what is going on. So you need some artistic background to tell, okay, what technique is being used, you know, what color, what paints, what is going on actually within the work, right? You need to have delicacy of taste. Or in food, you need to have at least a good palate. You need to know what you're eating, <laughs> essentially. If you don't have a good palate, you don't have a refined palate, you don't even know what you're tasting, then there's no way, he thinks, that you could be a good judge, in which case your judgments of art cannot be accurate. The second is to do with experience. So he thinks that a good judge, a good, a good critic, requires practice, as with anything, right? So this critic must have had a lot of experience with art in the same way we expect a food critic to have lots of experience with food, right? If the only thing you've ever eaten up to this point is mac and cheese, there's no way I'm gonna trust your judgment on sort of uh, different cuisines. The third, he thinks is the idea of range, right? the idea of a comparison in beauty. So this is a slightly different co uh, concept as opposed to experience. You also need a range of different experiences. So yes, you may have a lot of experiences, but if the only thing you've ever eaten in life is three-star Michelin restaurants, you don't have range in your palate, right? You, don't, you can't even tell what is good or bad art if you don't have the full range of what art can be like. So in the same way that, you know, a good food critic must have had some terrible food in order to know the difference, to grasp the range, a good critic, he thinks, also requires some associate, some experience with really bad art uh, in order to be able to be a good judge. The fourth is this idea of fairness. So this comes into the notion of personal value and personal bias and prejudice. So a good critic, ideally, is not swayed by the notion of the fact that that particular work of art is created by someone I like, or an artist I know, or my friend, or my father, and so on and so forth. So a good critic has to be fair, has to rid themselves of any bias and prejudice, which is quite a high ask to Critis critically examine and reflect upon one's emotional state in order to be a good critic you have to be without bias which i think is the hardest thing to do because there you know if you're a fan of something if you like art there tends to be emotion and desire and pleasure involved and it, and if you associate a particular artist often enough with that particular pleasure you can't avoid that there are notions of bias um, and the last one is the notion that is rather vague, which is the lack or the notion of good sense. So similar, very similar to what you thought of, this idea of a good grasp of the purpose and argumentation of a piece of work. So as you put, uh, as you mentioned before, the grasp of the philosophy. What is the artist trying to say and whether that piece of art is a good argument? That is, does it express what the aim is, well enough. So not only does he not see art just as an aesthetic uh, 
appreciative object also thinks all art should be an argument for some some notion some thesis and good art is like a good essay it must be effective in communicating <laughs> that notion that thesis so that's his criteria for what he thinks a good judge should be and if a good judge has a grasp of these things what they determine to be good art he thinks would be a quite a good stands quite a good chance of genuinely being good art so what what do you make of hume's sort of first attempt as it were as we know in uh philosophy a first attempt at genuinely trying to come up with a of a criteria a standard of taste um of art <laughs> i doubt that i could do a better job than david hume you know it's kind of a heavyweight but um definitely that last one about having a thesis in your artwork mm -hmm. that's so important in the university tradition of of mm -hmm. art today and especially once you go out into the art world if you're applying to do a show or be a part of a group show or whatever that's that becomes your selling point mm -hmm. right this is what the art advisor or whatever will tell to the interested collector um, so that thesis is extremely important. I really like the idea of range. Um, yeah, I think to be a really good critic and artist, you have to look at everything. And you have to draw from everything. Uh, that's becoming really popular today. Um, a, a word that's floating around in the art world is pastiche. Taking all these little bits of uh, different art histories or different visual um, languages and combining them together. So you'll see a lot of people like uh, Bazelitz or uh, Laura Owens will do mm -hmm. things that are considered low art or ugly, mm -hmm. but in the context they're doing it in, it's innovative, right? And you see a lot of low kitsch art now being high art. It was ironically doing that but now that's that's become uh it's very fluid you know but um there's people drawing from like instagram images they'll, they'll paint the, the whole instagram feed mm -hmm. it, it's all kinds of stuff but um i think that's always very interesting um and it takes someone really creative to look at something and go i want to take that and put it in a new context and then it takes a very well-rounded critic to understand that, to understand those complex intentions. Um, and then that a lot of that stuff gets lost on most viewers. They're not able to read all that contextuality in that piece. I think, I think an important thing, let's just make it a little bit simpler and, and dumb it down a little bit. Um, I know something's good even before I was really well educated on art mm -hmm. because of the impact it had on me. Um, there was some artworks that I saw that I liked, but I was embarrassed that I liked them. Mm -hmm. And it was upsetting to me, but I thought about them a lot. Mm -hmm. And um, and one of those artists for me was Cy Twombly. Uh, he pretty much just like scribbles, okay? Mm -hmm. But Cy uh, Twombly, you know, if you read about him, he has a very well-developed taste. He's not just some guy scribbling, right? 
But um, when you stand in front of his work, uh, it makes you feel free and you admire his audacity to put this up and um, it's, it's childlike. Just that the energy in them is so pleasant to be around. It's so freeing and it, it, it is a, a conflict, you know, because it goes against everything that good art's supposed to be. But that's what makes it good art is because it creates mm-hmm. that conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, so just because you intellectually don't like something, if that mm-hmm. art impacts you, right. uh, that's my base standard for deciding it's good if it really impacts you. And there's right. a lot of artists that got swept under history because mainly art history is the best-selling artist, not necessarily the best mm-hmm. artist. But over a centuries, like um, one that's being dug up right now is Hilma Off Clint, was a woman artist, the first abstract painter. Kandinsky was considered the first abstract painter, but actually Hilma did it before him. And her paintings mm-hmm. are really beautiful. Now she's famous because it makes sense politically to bring her up. Right. Yeah. I mean, what is particularly interesting to note is artists view the standard of taste of art very different from philosophers is that you you very quickly notice that hume doesn't judge art based on what is there (laughs) right at all he bases on how we know right (laughs) from the from the judgment point of view from the critics point of view but he says very little about the actual thing (laughs) itself like what is the thing and so very quickly notice like you for you what matters is the thing what it does right not the judgment, but actually the perceiver is more passive in the notion, where for Hume, the standard of taste has to do with an active sort of perceiver, mm. if you'd like. The perceiver themselves have to possess all of these great qualities about them in order for great artwork to be perceived. But there is a notion from artists that even without a perceiver, a hypothetical judge, right, good art is good by in of itself, right? So maybe to try a different view, maybe a, a different view from sort of one of Hume's critics or maybe improvers is Kant. So he wrote oh boy. <laughs> sort of uh, a critique of judgment, <laughs> right? He loves critiques in his, in his work. And he thinks that in terms of aesthetics, you can divide it into like three types, right? And he thinks that there is the agreeable, the beautiful and the good. And he thinks that the best art is good art. So agreeable is just simply art that gratifies a person. So it gives you pleasure, right? It, um, it's agreeable when it's like a non-rational, emotional uh, satisfaction of the desire. So it's pleasurable art. So it might be the best equivalent nowadays would be like a Michael Bay movie. You get all of the explosions. Feels great. It's an action film. You're entertained. It's good popcorn uh, material, right? He would say that would be agreeable art. The second would be beautiful, right? So he he classes beautiful art only a second, and that is the one that pleases one, right? It gives you enjoyment, but the person perceiving it is disinterested in the art. So I have no inclination. I have no desire that the art is appealing to. It's not like, let's say I love nature, right? And so 
I look at a piece of work, I look at a work of art, and it is all about nature. I like it only because it responds to a desire I already have, right? Kant says that's not good art. At best, it is only pleasing, right? But for something to be beautiful, I have to have no vested interest. I have to be a disinterested person in whatever the material. Like you said, I might not like it very much, and yet I recognize right, there's something there. There's a cognitive free satisfaction. I recognize it, is doing, it has an impact on me despite the fact I don't really like it. This weird contradiction of terms that I, I like it, but not for like the obvious pleasurable emotional sense. So he says that this, this notion is more is not necessarily cognitive, and yet it is it has a normative quality. It means that there is starting to become a standard here. There's this notion of recognition that despite I don't like this, I can see why it's good. I watch Citizen Kane. I might not particularly like the film, and yet I recognize there's something going on here that is worth sort of appraising to be beautiful. The last one he thinks is like the best good art has to be not only disinterested, but it has to be a normative and a cognitive process. So now, as you mentioned, there has to be a genuine, again, thesis to be said, right? You can think your way, you can reason your way into arguing that something is a good work of art, right? So if something is beautiful, you might not be able to express or convey. You can tell that there's something there that it satisfies you, but you can't argue that it is, there are no rational reasons as to why one thinks that it might be good art. But he thinks that the best, the good art, the esteemed and approved art, right, is arguable. So you can take a piece of art and you take it to any rational human being and you can argue and you can convince them through argument that a work of art is good. So they have no vested interest, right? They have no emotional, right, uh, sort of desire for the work of art. And yet, they rec if they rec can recognize the argument, they can know a piece of art to be good. <laughs> oh my God. Right? So, because Kant loves rationality, for him, rationality and reason is supreme for the human being, right? So everything, mm -hmm. whatever is good in the world comes back to the notion of reason. So you can reason your way, if you'd like, <laughs> to good art. <laughs> what do you make of that? Yeah, okay. Immediately, no. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. So I've I've talked to you about this before, but just uh -huh. philosophers, they're they're thinking dominant people, sensing mm -hmm. thinkers, intuitive thinkers, whatever. But if you're a philosopher, you're limited to the realm of logic. You have to put a, together a cohesive argument, and if you can't do that, it's outside your scope, right? But if we think about it, um, what is logical, what we can think and what we can know is very small. Mm -hmm. Most of everything out there are things that we will never understand, we'll never understand it completely. There's so much that we do not know. Mm -hmm. So for artists, we really rely on our intuitions, our intuitive feeling, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we also can deal with irrational things. We don't have to make sense. And I think that really upsets uh, mm -hmm. the philosophers is um, the world of art is so big, you know, uh, it's boundless. We can take on anything. And, you know, to just saying that good art 
is something that can be reasoned to, right? Mm -hmm. That is just so wrong. <laughs> so wrong. Um, I think, because uh, let's actually think about an art object is, you know, most people don't actually live with, you know, uh, an art object of a high caliber. Mm -hmm. But this is a, a plastic form. It's stationary. It's not changing. Mm -hmm. It's in the home or in the museum. And it's not something you spend a moment with. Like Instagram, like everything today is so fleeting and momentary. But this is something that's in your house for years. Mm. And the way you're sp I think you should do art is you, you live with it. You meditate on this thing. And you form this relationship with it. And you start understanding, you know, the obvious things, the physical things are there. You mm. go on the mental journey with it. And then you go beyond what you can think and feel to irrational things. You know, the intuitive mm. world that's so vast. And... There's a force in that object that you just feel. Um, and when I teach my students, I say, you know when the work of art is done is when mm. this thing that you're making corresponds with something in you. When that, the thing outside is exactly relating to the thing inside. And mm. not everyone's going to connect with every work of art. You know, we don't put these standards on music. So people right. like rock, they like classical, but I'm painting. Everyone's supposed to like everything for some mm -hmm. reason. But um, when someone walks in the museum and they, they see a work of art that resonates with them, they're just struck by it. Mm -hmm. They cannot reason why. It's a, a subconscious, subliminal level. It's intuitive. Mm -hmm. They just, something inside them corresponds with that thing. Right. right. And so that's a great artwork for that person because they can learn something about themselves through that exterior thing. Mm -hmm. They can go on a journey with this and grow and, and right. meditate on it. That's a great mm -hmm. work of art and a great work of art. You can do that your whole life. Right. You know, it never dries out. Mm -hmm. It always has a, a deeper complexity. That's why it's so hard to make a great work of art. Mm -hmm. So hearing that, do you then think that what is the standard of taste effectively is purely a subjective thing then is there any chance because as you mentioned right there's a reason why we study them as like historical theory but we don't take them seriously nowadays in the modern day of aesthetics because as you say it's ridiculous right mm -hmm. does it just doesn't reflect how we think about art now but yeah. it's we look upon that in history and we think it's worth studying because we recognize the fact that academics in particular, not just philosophers, tend to want to objectivize the fundamentally <laughs> subjective. Right? They want yeah. to come up with a means of being able to produce a way of categorizing something objectively. Right? Yeah. We want to be able to say what something is. Um, but very quickly we realize that that attempt in philosophy is often futile. To this day, we have no idea, right, what the mind is, for instance. We have no idea what the self is and all of these age-old ontological questions, precisely because these things are all moving, right? These things are always impermanent, they're always procedural. So am I right in thinking that you are basically in the subjective camp? You're saying that, okay, there is an objective standard but that standard ultimately falls on the subjective so yes the objective standard is whatever moves you whatever moves you is an objective normative concept however what moves you ultimately is an subjective experience 
I think these things could be calculated, mm-hmm. right? They could be calculated. It's just right. the complexity of this calculation mm-hmm. is so large that right. no one can think their way to it. Ah, right. Okay. This is it's a highly complex thing that's happening because you know um, when the mind encounters something ambiguous, which a lot mm-hmm. of good art is ambiguous. It calls on the higher functions of the brain to resolve right. that problem, right? Yeah. It doesn't know what this thing is. So, And when that happens, you go through your memories, mm-hmm. right? Not not consciously, maybe, but your brain's trying to solve this problem. And you kind of go through your whole brain, being to connect mm-hmm. to this thing. So no wonder it's subjective because your relationship to the color red, your relationship to whatever imagery there, what are, all these right. things are going to be different for each person. Mm-hmm. But those are physical structures in your brain. If right. you could calculate that, you know, if we had that capacity, then mm-hmm. you could say this person's going to really enjoy this artwork, right? Right. But also the brain all day long is being modulated by these different neurotransmitters mm-hmm. based on what happened yesterday, the day before. Maybe the impact will only happen at that moment in your life for you. Right. Because a certain way your brain is modulated that day. You know, and it won't have the same effect after that. It's right. it's too complex. It could be calculated, but I don't think yeah. you know people are going to sit down and think it out. Right. <laughs> There's maybe one day, you know, when we when we get to Dali 5.0, <laughs> you'll be able to calculate and generate an image that will be considered as good art. Right? It would have an impact by everyone. I guess the the difficulty reason why this is so sort of controversial topic is the notion that we want to have of consensus, right? We, we want, at the end of the day, we want to be able to reach a consensus of what things are good and what things are bad. We have an innate, for some reason, we have an innate human desire to want to do that with everything, whether right? good wines and bad wine, good teas, bad teas, there's good <laughs> art, bad art, everything. We want to be able to classify them into a gradient of quality. And yet, when we really think about it, it becomes insanely, as you say, it's insanely difficult to, to do that. And yet we pretend, because maybe we have to, maybe there's a business in it, that there is such a judgment, right? That there is such a thing as a genuine three Michelin star restaurant. Not denying <laughs> that the food is great, right? But on what scale? Like, why, why, why is there a consensus and why does this tire company get to decide the consensus, which is this means good quality, that means good art? Um, so in which case, if we were to be purely rational, purely consistent human beings, should we give up this consensus? Should we just say, okay, I mean, the, the Oscar nomination should just be, you know, a bunch of people and their preferences. It shouldn't hold, it shouldn't hold any genuine artistic merit, right? Some people think, well, maybe uh, the Cannes Festival is a better way. Like they are better critics, mm-hmm. right? It, they, when they judge art, that's, that's Sharon. Oscar, the Oscars just pander to what's popular, right? And then you have like even more subpar, you know, the Golden Globes or like even a, a lesser version of the Oscars, if you'd like. <laughs> so should we just bite the bullet as it were and just say, well, these are just groups of preferences, but they're not genuine standards of taste. I think we should absolutely listen to experts. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important because right. um, the goal of culture is m- mainly growth, right? Mm-hmm. And someone who's an expert on that subject, 
That's right. all they've been thinking about for a couple decades, you know? Right. They can probably expand your mind a little. They can probably mm-hmm. provide you many different perspectives to consider something. Right. And um, that's mainly what, you know, experts do today. That's what I do with my students mm-hmm. is everyone has access to knowledge now, but I curate that right. knowledge. Mm-hmm. And I, I can give them a concise answer at that moment in time. And I can show mm-hmm. them artworks that might really be good for them at that moment. Right. right? But it takes a long time to develop taste. You have to look at a lot, you have to read a lot, you have to think a lot, you have to experience a right. lot. But as far as logic goes, I think, you know, Kurt Gödel, you know, the uh, the <laughs> famous logician, he wrote the incompleteness theorem, you know, <laughs> all systems of logic are inconsistent and incomplete, yeah. right? So yeah. I think um I think the current western society could embrace intuition a little bit. Mm-hmm. you know kind of <laughs> kind of even it out the thinking brain and the feeling yeah. brain and um and have some room for mystery like like they do in yeah. eastern culture mystery yeah. is very important it, yeah. it gives a lot of value to life we don't have to have a textbook on everything <laughs> yeah i mean it's interesting you bring that up because historically i guess in the eastern world art is less sort of held to a standard, as it were. I mean, there were standards, of course. There are standards of the taste of any culture. But, for instance, Taoist art is very much the use of art as a tool, as a means of expression, rather as something to be admired. For them, art is more a process, right? It's not an object. It's not a static thing. Art happens when you are doing it. So for them, the art happens in the creation. So you see a lot of Taoist sort of like practitioners. Um, they use, they drink alcohol, they use art as a process, but they don't really hang up what they create on the wall and have a look at it afterwards. For them, the art is purely in the creation. And then afterwards, you might as well just do the next one. <laughs> There's no value in the static um, of the object. Right? So very rarely you have Taoist art being framed and preserved in museums because they might themselves would have just tossed it right somewhere. Um, so that's another way of looking at it. They have a very different conception of art, more as a tool of self-expression, purely as a tool of expression, rather than an object to be judged and critiqued. There's, it's not a product, um, as it were. Um, even when it comes to the notion of temples, of monasteries and things like that, in the Christian world, we know, right? We know the very famous uh, individuals who have worked on pieces of art for the church, right? You attach your name to the work. Whereas in China, it tends to be a rarer thing. It does still happen, right? Some people who are experts on the matter can attach a name and a specific craftsman, specific artist to a piece of work. But it tends to be done anonymously because they perhaps view it as just work, right? If you're creating something for something else, then there's an objective. I'm just building something, I'm building a house. I don't really think of myself as an artist, whereas art in its most purest sense is just for you, right? So if you're making something, if you're contributing to a monastery, maybe it's for religious purposes, you're doing it for the gods, right? Uh, It's a notion, it's an act of devout, um, offering right it's 
good merit, it's good work, but you wouldn't say, right? Very rarely that person will go home and think, oh, I created a great piece of art, <laughs> right? <laughs> they would say, oh, I did something good today for the gods or made like an offering to the gods, that, and that would be quite nice. But I don't know of when Michelangelo was painting the ceiling, did he consider himself as making art or is he just doing a job, right? So who knows? <laughs> he got get into the head of, um, of these artists. But I guess something quite nice to maybe take away if you know this is quite dense and theoretical stuff in terms of taking away how to look at art how to appreciate art some of my friends and i have come up with like a compromise between the two right this idea of on one hand we want to know a lot intellectually to appreciate art as you say we need to have range of experience we have to know a lot read a lot about the matter and yet that seems to be in direct contradiction of the notion of just looking Right, of just raw experience and emotional impact and see what it makes you feel. And sometimes if you know too much, if you're always thinking about, okay, all the techniques and all that background history and stuff, you tend to neglect, because your attention can only be divided so few, so thinly. And so if you spend all that time, if you look at a piece of all you can think about is all the information that takes away from the raw emotional impact. Perhaps that's why as a child, you were able to have that emotional impact but if you knew the history, all of the other, all the other information, that, as you say, the gears of your brain might not have turned that way that day. And so maybe a good compromise that I've sort of, sort of discussed with some friends when we go to art galleries is to read nothing. Mm-hmm. Right? The first time we go, we read nothing. We just look. Right? The next time we go, then we might read something. We bother reading like the card. We bother listening to the audio. Because we want to capture, we want to have the, we're quite greedy. We want to capture the best of both worlds. On one hand, we want the raw emotional sort of experience of it. On the other hand, we want to know more so that we could notice things and experience more things that we would have missed if not have read up on it. And so maybe that's a way to do it. I'm not sure how you, like when you go to an art gallery, what, what do you do? Do you <laughs> read up, do you study <laughs> beforehand? Actually, the last the last thing you talked about um, mm-hmm. brought me straight to a this very unique uh, museum mm-hmm. um, right outside of Dusseldorf, Germany. It's called Museum Insel Hambroich, mm-hmm. and it's in this giant garden. And each gallery, you know, you have to walk to it through this park. But um, they did a really unique thing. There are no title cards. You don't know who any of the artists are, mm-hmm. and none of it's historically organized. Mm-hmm. So you have ancient, you know, tribal art next to modern art. And um, I just had the best time there. Mm-hmm. I didn't know who made anything. It was just about the artwork. And seeing these new relationships without all the cat- categories, right? You know, in, in museums, we, we do put everything in a box. Here's this person mm-hmm. in this time period. But um, doing it like that was was great. It was really unique, and I think it's a lot more uh, honest. I didn't realize when until I went there, I was always looking to the side of the art for the plaque, mm-hmm. right, to read who made it. I didn't realize how much that was influencing my judgment of the thing. Because mm-hmm. uh, I remember I'd go to museums sometimes and I'd look at something like that's terrible, and then I look at the name card like, oh, he did that. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um. I suggest to anyone going to the museum, that's what I mm-hmm. tell my students, is uh, it's so overwhelming to go to a museum. Yeah. Just blow through it. Blow mm-hmm. through it until you see one thing that mm-hmm. really strikes you, and then actually sit down and spend time with that. 
and then read about it and go yeah. home. Read about that artist. Read about their life and start building that relationship. Go back to it over and over again. And just mm -hmm. one artwork. I think just going through and seeing everything and taking little iPhone photos that you never look at and mm -hmm. taking your selfie in front of the big important ones. It's just yeah. like, <laughs> you're not really relating. Yeah. I agree. There's something, I guess that sort of reflects back on sort of me with sort of visual or like paintings and, and calligraphy and that sort of thing. There are more names attached to that in the Eastern world. But if you look at sort of pottery, I don't remember the last time I went to like a museum or, or saw like a, 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 a Ming vase. Like, I have no idea who made it. <laughs> and there's no record of it whatsoever. But you know that someone made it. Mm -hmm. But it does, other than the historical context, you don't really get much about what's going on. But yeah, I agree that like, there's something, there's obviously a lot of value to context and the history and the story. And like, otherwise you wouldn't be able to know what the purpose is or what the intended purpose is. Um, but then again, there's a lot of value in the emotional raw awareness of it as well. And unfortunately, it's very hard to capture both. Right, at the same time, because they seem to be contradictory in terms. If you know a lot and you're thinking a lot about, if you think too much and you overanalyze, you can't appreciate it enough. But if you just appreciate, then you have to you have to ignore um, the context. I wonder, are the best judges then? Are the people who enjoy art the most kids then? Because they know nothing, right? They haven't read anything. They have no background historical knowledge, right? Even if you go to a museum as an artist nowadays, you can't not know the things you already know, right? The things you've already learned, you've, it's in there. And so you are already more aware of the context than perhaps a child. So maybe we should just ask children what they think. <laughs> they have the best raw emotional sort of content, awareness of what's going on. But we have the experience and the the other background knowledge. No, I think I think that's a pretty uh, popular thing to go. Oh, kids are so divine, and they they mm -hmm. have all these you know whatever. Uh, no, I think I think the best art appreciation moments are for adults who mm -hmm. do know the artists, who do know the history and all the historical context, and then all the personal history with that thing. It's that um, that depth and complexity of appreciation that a kid can't have that. A kid will have that, mm -hmm. that raw thing, you know, mm -hmm. but it's, it's way different than an adult's appreciation of artwork. Mm -hmm. So I think the value should be placed on the adults, you know, <laughs> and we should stop trying to like run away from, from this and putting all this <laughs> weight on kids. <laughs> we shouldn't overthink. We shouldn't underthink it. <laughs> no, just let it be a natural thing. Just form mm -hmm. a relationship it lasts a long period of time with an artwork that enriches your life. That's yeah. it. It's simple. <laughs> <laughs> so how can we wrap this up? We started with studio history, guilds, guilds, influential artists, and then we got into aesthetics and everything. Yeah. So like, what's the thesis here? Um, well, it depends. So the first sort of notion of the link the guild to the aesthetics is like the idea of a standard, right? Mm -hmm. So we ultimately reached a conclusion where there seems to be a standard. There seems to be an objective standard, but that objective standard is to, is particular to a person. So rather than an objective standard that should be adopted by like a school or a society or, or just an objective in general, there is a standard for the individual. 
Um, so to link it back to the guilds, right? The guilds have had their time in terms of providing like a community, a skill set. But perhaps one of the reasons as to why the guilds fell apart is that recognition of the individual objective standard. At some point, artists became too self-aware <laughs> and they were like, hang on a second, right? I want to do, you know, I have my own judgment, you know, I have, you know, there's something I myself want to pursue. And inevitably that means leaving sort of the guild to set up maybe your own guild. So I don't know what your, is the thesis meant to be explanatory or argumentative? So are you trying to explain perhaps some of the reasons as to why the guilds sort of aren't as popular nowadays? Or are you looking to argue that what held the guilds together was this? And now what hold, what defines an artist is no longer what held the guild together. So what a guild used to be was a community of artists, but the definition of artist has changed. No, I think it's, um, I guess it shows that art is contextual, mm -hmm. that things that we don't traditionally think about influencing art, like power systems and the economy, yeah, actually greatly influence it, mm -hmm. you know, how the studio has changed and evolved. And um, maybe our current conception of, of art and appreciation is um something pretty luxurious mm -hmm. and it's actually empowering to the individual right because mm -hmm. that power was taken away from people through a power system and given to one person mm -hmm. to be the judge and today we each can go in and make judgments for ourselves. Mm -hmm. any any fool can walk in and be like this is a great artwork right. and we'll be like all right mm -hmm. <laughs> Okay, so maybe a, a, a good thesis would be, what is apparent looking at the history that art has never been much of an individual thing, right? So it's influenced by economics, by the government of power systems, nepotism, the aristocracy, you know, power dynamics, a hierarchy, and all of these things we've sort of noted on are different standards of taste, right? Different standards of what counts as good craft or good art. But it seems to be be the case that through evolution, through time, artists have become self-aware of the fact that what matters is the development of one's individual standard of taste. And in order for you to do that, yes, there's lots to gain from the resources, the community, and yet true meaningful individual expression requires the separation from the group to develop your own standard of taste. I agree. And, um, not only for artists, but for people who want to connect with culture, um, it is important at some point to develop your own taste, to think your own thoughts, to feel your own feelings about something. And uh, this is ultimately what art can do. It can grow you as a person. It can connect you with, with lineages, you know, ancient histories, um, and round you out. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, and you can bring that into your home at whatever level you can afford to not only enrich your life, but your family's life. Mm 